Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. For them to try to circumvent that by reappointing her is wrong. She has proven to be unfit to be uh, a member of the legislature, and it's unfortunate that LD13 decided to recommend a name that will never be considered in Maricopa County. I'm not here with an agenda to veto more bills than anyone else. Um, I want to get things done, um, but I'm going to stop the things that I think don't move our state in the right direction. Over the next few quarters, as we march to November of 2024, you know, can Ruben keep up the pace? And then similarly, cinema. Can she do it as well, especially since she doesn't have the Democratic Party infrastructure since she moved away from that over to being independent? You're buying it in a voluntary way. You know when you're buying that that item was likely not cooked in a commercial kitchen. You understand that. No statute or case law directly addresses the issue of whether or to what extent a county board can assign election duties to county recorder that are not specifically otherwise authorized by law. The first rule is any money you don't spend this year, you can spend next year. And next year, it's not a forecast. Next year, it's a fact. And with me to talk about Governor Hobbs setting a new veto record, who might succeed Liz Harris in the legislature after her expulsion and more, our former gubernatorial candidate, Christine Jones. Good morning, Christine. Good morning. And former state lawmaker, Reginald Bolton. Reginald, good morning to you. And good morning. So I guess this isn't much of a surprise, right, Christine, that the record for most vetoes in a single session has been shattered. Um, Is it surprising that it happened in April? Well, I'm a little surprised. I guess if you're going to be the governor of no, you want to get to the record the soonest as you can. But it really doesn't feel very productive to me. You know, when Napolitano vetoed a lot of bills, she was actually also signing some bills that were actually getting things done. And so, I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed, I guess is how I would say it. How much of this do you think is on the governor and how much of it is on the legislature for sending her bills they know that she's going to veto? There are some of the latter for sure. There's no way she was going to jump in the pool with the election deniers and the Save the Steel people. No, No doubt. But, you know, if you can't make tamales in your home kitchen and sell them, that was surprising and disappointing all at the same time. And there's no reason other than just wanting to t- to make a record or just be obstreperous to veto something like that that has veto-proof support in the legislature. So, you know, it, it feels to me like she's trying to make a stand and make a point, but it's having a negative effect because she's the opposite of getting things done. All right. So we'll talk about the so-called tamale bill in just a second. Reginald, I want to get your perspective because you and I spoke uh, before the session started and you had pointed out at that time, as a lot of folks have, that there would be a lot of vetoes uh, from this governor given the makeup of the legislature numerically and the makeup ideologically of the Republicans in control. Are you surprised that, that the record has fallen at this point and not maybe a little bit later in the session? No, I'm not surprised at all. And and I think we have to actually step back and look at what is the legislative process. It's in which the House and the Senate, which is Republican control, they decide what goes on the agenda, what's voted on the floor, and ultimately what's sent to the governor. This is a clear, sought-off stra- strategy uh, that the Republican majority implemented. Uh, and let's really, if we want to talk about vetoes, you know, Democrats introduced about 500 Democratic bills, only about 30 of them got a hearing. They only sent two to the governor. So 500 Democratic bills have 
effectively been vetoed by the Republican majority. I, I mean, if you want to talk about bipartisanship and working together, you actually have to have policies that do that. But these are bills that are very extreme. And these are bills that in which, you know, the Republican majority, they know they're going to be vetoed. Should the governor's office, and maybe they're doing this to some extent and we're just not hearing about it, should the governor's office maybe be more engaged in the legislative process to try to work on these bills to, you know, if it's maybe not a, to Christine's point, not an election denial or, you know, an abortion-related bill that she's clearly going to veto. If there's something that she can work with, should she, her, she or her staff maybe engage more with lawmakers to get these bills to a point where she can live with them and sign them? You know, the governor's office, they have been engaged. But in order for the engagement to actually be effective, you have to have committee chairs. They have to allow for bills to go on the agenda. Those bills then have to be passed through committees, sent on the floor, and, and so on and so forth. But if you're not getting legislation that's actually going to allow you to move forward or you have a legislature whose intent and primary focus is to make you look as partisan as possible, th there's not much that you can do there. I mean, the governor laid out her plan when she, you know, she talked about her budget and she consistently has laid out where she wants to see the state. And I think the legislature has to have open arms as well. All right. So let's talk about the, the tamale bill. This would deal with so-called cottage foods, basically, you know, folks who cook tamales or other kinds of foods that are not not necessarily shelf-stable in their kitchen, selling them in generally fairly small quantities here. This is a bill, Christine, as you referenced, that had veto-proof support, bipartisan support in the legislature. A lot of lawmakers, especially Democrats, it seems, were kind of caught off guard that, that she vetoed it. And there's talk now that they might try to override it next week. Yeah, I don't have a good sense of how many votes have been whipped to override a veto or even if there's the appetite to do that. But look... Uh, substantively, you should be able to bake cookies and bring them to the office and, you know, raise money for your kid's fundraiser. It's a ridiculous suggestion. And by the way, you have to have a license for that anyway. So I'm not really sure what the rub was there. But I want to go back to something that Mr. Boulding said because he was in leadership in the Democrat Party with a Republican governor and actually got stuff done. You know why? Because that governor talked to the leadership and I assure you, Ducey didn't agree with Bolding on most of the policy issues. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But he and his staff demonstrated some leadership and said, look, I want to get the following things done and I need you to get on board because I need some of your support and we're going to work together to do that. That's leadership. And that, I think, is where Hobbs has really fallen down. And, and to your point, she said, look, we want to invest in education. We want to secure our water future. We want to tackle the affordable housing crisis. Great. So do the Republicans. Let's do it together. But you have to do more than engage. You have to go look at people like you in the eye and say, look, there are some things that we agree on and we're going to go get those done together. We have not seen evidence of that from the Hobbs administration. Is this bill maybe an example to an extent of what Christine is talking about, that this is not like a hot button issue? This is not election. This is not housing. This is not abortion. This is tamales, basically, <laughs> right? Like, is there a would there have been a way to maybe get to a yes for both sides on a bill like this? Well, I, I do think that is important that not only we look at the, the framing of the legislation, we actually look at where the legislation has come from. So this legislation is it's this is model legislation from the Institute for Justice, which is a Charles Koch brother, uh, you know, institute that has model legislation. I mean, let's take a step back. When has uh, the the sponsor of this bill 
or the Republican majority ever been fighting and ex really excited about uh, ladies selling tamales on the street? When has that ever happened? You know, it, that's that's just not the that's not the case. When you look at the policy of this bill, what it actually does is it has unchecked widespread sale distribution of food. So there, it, it is actually much greater uh, than just, you know, ladies selling, you know, uh, tamales on the street. This actually goes into another industry that particularly may be creeping up. And that's why you see, you know, the Arizona Restaurant Association and others. Uh, I, I don't believe it's going to be over. It's not going to be a veto override. There you are, don't think so? Absolutely not. I, I do know that there are other ways that you can work. So the Arizona Department of Health Services constantly tried to work with uh, the sponsor of the bill. He wouldn't take any amendments. There was a member of House leadership who introduced an amendment. Uh, the sponsor of the bill wouldn't take any amendments. So I, they should reintroduce the bill, work with the governor's office, put it back up for a vote, a, a separate bill up for a vote, and, and get on with this issue. Let's talk a little bit about what the legislature has been up to this week. By the way, you, you were there for eight years. You never had spring break, did you, at the legislature? Oh, my goodness. I, well, I wish... Is there even – is that a thing? <laughs> well, that's what they called it. I, right? I know, but it, is that a thing? No, no, it's not I, a thing. I didn't would think would so. you have wanted to go on spring break with your legislative colleagues? Actually, I probably would not have wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been some talk that maybe there's some progress on a state budget. The one constitutional thing the legislature has to do. Reginald, what, what are you hearing about talks between the governor and legislative leadership about maybe finding some common ground and, and not having to worry, for example, about a government shutdown? Yeah, so I think the spring break happened for two reasons. One, uh, with the expulsion of Liz Harris, you had uh, a House that didn't have all uh, 31 members. So there, there was no legislation that was going to get passed um, if it wasn't bipartisan. Right. Uh, and, and two, I, I do believe that there has been substantive conversations regarding uh, budget discussions. And, and I believe that there's going to be, you know, from what I'm hearing, I believe that there's going to be some some budget uh, discussions that'll be, you know, talked about later. It seems, Christine, as though if this week was used to actually make progress on the budget, maybe time well spent. Absolutely, and you know, if, we're, if our starting point was the budget that was approved by all Democrats in the last cycle, and we try to build from there, you would think that we could actually get to some common ground, that we could make some progress. Obviously, to Mr. Boulding's point, you can't pass anything when you have a missing seat. But my sense is there is not cooperation and not discussion going on. And if the ninth floor just flexes muscle and the legislature just says, we have the votes you don't get to pick, they're going to make very little substantive, you know, affirmative progress during this spring break. Do, does it matter, do you think, sort of what has happened before? I mean, obviously, there's been some acrimony, I think is maybe a gentle way to say it, between the legislature and the governor and, and her staff. Does that matter when it comes to budget or can they, everybody sort of put that aside and really focus on getting something that everybody can agree to? I think it matters a lot because at the end of the day, it's the governor's budget. I mean, the legislature, with all due respect, wants to say – we participated in, in our pet projects and our things that we support and have deeply held beliefs about have been in there. But at the end of the day, it really is going to be her budget. So it does matter. And, you know, I, I hope the legislature, if any of them are listening, prove me wrong on this, but I'm not feeling optimistic about how much progress they'll make. Well, I assume all 89 of them are listening right now, or at least we'll, well podcast. Probably, probably. Yeah. <laughs> that, seems, that seems like a fair assumption. Yeah. Reginald, do you, think, do you think the past matters here? Do you think they can put that aside and, and come to an agreement regardless of all the stuff that's happened between January and now? 
the legislature works uh, in, a, in a mode of what have you done for me lately? And how does this best fit the interests of not only, you know, our, myself, uh, our constituents, the people who we serve, and you as well? So I, you know, I've sat on the floor in which there has been uh, vehemently, you know, really high discussions and, and anger on all sides. And the next day you get into a room and you agree on an issue and mm. you can move forward. So I, I do believe that there will be a, a budget that will be agreed upon by everyone. Um, you know, there will be some things that people will like, some things that people won't like. Uh, I, I think that, you know, part of the spring break was also making progress on that. And I you know, ultimately, you do build levels of trust, you know, and that's what legislation, you know, is about building that level of trust. But at the end of the day, people are going to look out for their what's what's in the best interest of those who they serve. I would actually say just the opposite. It won't be something that everybody likes because it's pushed by very liberal progressives on one side and very conservative Republicans on the other side. They're going to get there, but it's going to be something that everybody hates. Yeah, well, this, probably both. Yeah, this okay. is the question then. Like, it must put Republican legislative leaders in kind of an awkward position, right? Because they're negotiating something with a Democratic governor that they have to push to their members, knowing that they have really emphasized the rule of you know you need a majority of the majority, but they also knew know who their majority is, and probably even just because Hobbs's name is on it. Some members aren't going to vote for it anyway, right, Christine? I think that's right. And so, you know, when you have an evenly split legislature and you did during some of your time there, you're probably going to have to get some people to cross over. I mean, I, you don't have Mr. Boyer anymore, but whoever, you know, whoever his replacement is, that that type of person right. probably has to support the other side. Yeah. In the legislature now, what you see with leadership, one of the things is we do have such a closely divided, not only caucus, but also closely divided, divided legislature is uh, those who are in leadership, they, they're not going to go at it alone. They're going to ensure that they have at least, you know, you know, 10 to 12 of those members in their caucus who are going to stand with them. Um, because there's always this constant fear of if I am bucking my caucus, uh, you know, particularly I put myself in jeopardy. So, you know, there, there's going to be some members who are going to vote against it. But the majority of those in the caucus uh, will support, you know, the speaker and the president if they decide to go into a, a negotiation and they secure a, a deal with the governor. Um, and I think that's just the way the legislature is going to work. All right. That is Reginald Bolding, also joined by Christine Jones. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. So, Christine, the uh, precinct committee members in Legislative District 13, Chandler area, Southeast Valley, uh, nominated, as they are required to do, three candidates to the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors to replace Representative Liz Harris, who was expelled a couple of weeks ago. The top vote-getter in that process, Liz Harris. We heard uh, from uh, County Supervisor Steve Gallardo uh, at the top of the show who basically said there's no way that she will get nominated. I mean, what what do you make of the fact that, like, she still clearly has a lot of support in her district, but there's no way the supervisors would vote for her, right? No, and it's such a difficult thing from a constitutional standpoint because the members of that legislative district who vote are entitled to pick their representative. And they've clearly said, we picked who we wanted and we pick her again. And if you followed the votes from the legislative district meeting the other night, it wasn't even close. Right. She was way out in front. However, if you are the champion save the steel flag waver flamethrower and you literally personally have gone after Bill Gates and you've gone after Clint Hickman and you've said what idiots they are, there's no possible way, to your point, that they are going to pick you. So, you know, 
fr- from a, a legal and, and sort of visceral standpoint, it troubles me that that group can't pick the representatives like we saw happen in Tennessee, right? When those gentlemen were expelled, they came right back. But I agree with you. There's no way she's coming back. Do you think Reginald, she even gets an interview? From no. the supervisors? No, no. I, I don't think she gets an inter- interview. I mean, it's one of those things where you don't want to burn a bridge that you're going to need to walk across at some point. And, and I think that's where, you know, she finds herself at. I, I mean, what's going to be interesting, though, is, you know, who is nominated and how they choose to, um, you know, actually, you know, operate within the caucus. I mean, you know, the other nominees, they clearly know and have seen that Liz Harris was the top vote getter again. And she'll probably run for office in 2024. So the question is, whoever this nominee is, do you get in line with your district or do you get in line with Republican leadership? Uh, And that's going to be a very tough space for that person to be in. Christine, it's an interesting point you made about how clearly she she was the top vote getter and clearly the precinct committee people want her again. They support her, supported her then, they support her now. It'd be interesting to Reginald's point if she runs again how she would do because she didn't win by that much. That was her race, I believe, was one of those that went to the recount along with the attorney general's race because the the vote total was so close. And, you know, precinct committee people are some of the most diehard, like active people, maybe not always representative of the district at large. Well, and particularly in that, in LD13, it is a, a particular kind of PC and they were very supportive of Liz from the very beginning. But then Julie Willoughby was on that Republican primary ballot as right. well. So, you know, it, depending on who the, the supervisors end up selecting or appointing, I think Liz probably has a very strong chance in 24. But then if Julie is in office, she would as well. So that'll right. be one to watch. And the other representative is a, is a Democrat in that district. It's a split district. Right. Strangely. Yeah. And, and, you know, the whole Ahwatukee area now is represented by, well, the minority leader, right? It lives in Ahwatukee. So it's it's a really very interesting um, dynamic down there to, to keep an eye on. Another interesting dynamic we heard uh, yesterday was a state senator, Wendy Rogers, getting an order against a Capitol Ti- Arizona Capital Times reporter to basically stay away from her her homes. Uh, there's tr- they're trying to figure out, the Cap Times trying to figure out where Wendy Rogers actually lives. Is she in her district up in northern Arizona? Is she in her house in Tempe or in Chandler? Christine, what do you, what do you make of this whole situation? Well, as a fundamental sort of foundational principle, public figures should be available to the press. So stop it. When I ran for office and probably when you ran – you had to put your home address on your petitions. Literally every single person who signed your petitions knew your home address. That rule, of course, has been changed in the interest of safety. But I do think this notion of of showing irreparable harm, which would be the the standard to Mm -hmm. get a a restraining order, is very perplexing to me because somebody coming up and ringing your doorbell doesn't seem dangerous, particularly when it's a reporter standing there with a pen and a notebook saying, could I get a statement from you? So – I, I think it's much ado about nothing, and I wish that Wendy would just say, here's where I live. Let, let's just make this a not, not a story. This is an issue that pops up from time to time, right, about where legislators live. There's the issue with uh, Darren Mitchell, who had a mattress in a house on a floor that was under construction, and there's a lot of consternation about whether he actually lived there or not when he was running. Is this something that constituents actually care about, whether you live w- – where you live, really? 
you know, is it something that constituents care about or is it something that they should care about? <laughs> yeah. you know, I, those might be two different questions. Those, those right? are two different questions, right? I, I do believe that there is a, a, a small percentage of people who are paying attention that much that will actually look to see whether or not your residency is in the legislative district that you're in. Obviously, you know, you need to make sure you're following state statute and things of that nature. Uh, will this play a significant role in, you know, the way that she's re-elected or re-elected? And, and I, I don't think it's going to be a significant issue at all. Um, I, I do think that the uh, the court, you know, ruling, proceeding, that process is just actually going to, uh, you know, apply more interesting eyes and more people are going to look into, you know, uh, Ms. Rogers. And I, I just don't think she's going to accomplish what she sought out to do by seeking a restraining order. Well, and she is not somebody who loves talking to the Capitol press anyway. Um, it's it's kind of interesting that I think to Christine's point that somebody showing up, I mean, I don't know about you guys, I have people ringing my doorbell pretty much all day long. But you know, whether or not it's it's irreparable harm or constituting harassment or something seems like a totally different question. Yeah, no, that, that level of standard is one in which I think that, you know, uh, one that needs to be dug into just a little bit more. I mean, the, the reality is, is that we want uh, the media, we want to make sure that public figures have the ability to uh, that we have access to them, that we want the media to ask questions. We want to make sure that we have a, a strong understanding of, you know, what's happening. And, you know, you know, this is just uh, one of many issues that we have seen swirling around uh, Senator Wendy Rogers. All right, guys, a couple minutes left. I want to ask you about uh, some fundraising numbers that came out this week, specifically in the U.S. Senate race. We saw that uh, Ruben Gallego uh, outraised uh, Kirsten Cinema in the first quarter, um, a, a little more than a million dollars. I mean, not an insignificant amount. So, uh, Christine, is it safe to say that in the end, to run this race, you'll need approximately $400 bazillion to, to actually run a competitive race? At least. I don't know how many zeros are on that. It's a but lot of it, zeros. It, you know, we, we had one of the most expensive senatorial races in the last cycle. This one will be very expensive, particularly if you have three candidates in the general election ballot. But I will say something about Kirsten Cinema. It doesn't really matter what ticket she runs on. She is a prolific fundraiser. And I know that Ruben Gallego got this bump when he jumped in and, and the Democrats are kind of ticked off at her right now. But she's got more than three times the money on hand and do not second guess her ability to go just power money out of people because she's very good at it. Do you think, Christine, either – any of the guys – she has to say any, not either because there could be three. Do you think any of the candidates will want for money in this race? It depends on – so let me talk about the Republican primary. I'll defer to you for the Democrats. But you'll have some self-funders in the Republican Party and some fundraisers. And I think if you end up with a Mark Lamb or a Carrie Lake who are not going to self-fund, then yes, they're going to be scraping the bottom of the barrel. But you, to, to Mr. Boulding's earlier point, if you have the ALJ or the Koch brothers or somebody who <laughs> says, we, we want to pick up this seat – they may be getting national fundraising help. Right. I mean, safe to say that Gallego will have the, the resources he needs one way or the other to run this race the way he wants to? Yeah. I mean, these races, you know, there will be the, the amount of money that will be spent on these races. No candidate will, well, you know, no party will, will want for money uh, with regards to this. I, I do think this is the best 
you know, a scenario that if you're, uh, you know, Ruben Gallego, um, this is the headlines that you want. You know, you want to be able to show that I have the ability to fundraise. You want to be able to show that I am viable for this seat. Um, I personally don't think uh, Senator Cinema runs. I, I don't see any scenario in which she wins. Um, mm. And I, you know, I think from a from a ego standpoint, I don't think she will want to run a race and lose. I think she'll I think she'll look at numbers. I think she'll be prepared and in the case that polling tells tells her that she has a pathway, um, but I don't know if she's going to have a pathway. It's going to really depend on who that Republican is. Um, who are the Republicans who get in the race? Right. Interesting. All right. Well, I have to leave it there, guys. Reginald Bolden, Christine Jones, thanks so much for coming in. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.